What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. April is a huge month for TV, and starting this weekend, the Recapables feed returns to give you in-depth analysis on your favorite TV shows, including Killing Eve, Billions, and many more. There will also be a special Precapables series on the Recapables feed on the final season of Game of Thrones, where our staff forecasts what will happen every Sunday on the show. So make sure to subscribe now before the premiere of Killing Eve and Game of Thrones on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Ringer NBA Show. My name is Danny Chow, filling in for Kevin O'Connor on this episode of The Corner 3. Joining me on the other line uh, from Dallas is Ringer staff writer Jonathan Charks. How's it going? What's up, man? It's nice to talk NBA again. Like watching some NBA games this week, it's like, oh my God. This college basketball is fun, but the level, it's just different sport almost. Right? And we actually got a great game on Thursday. In early April, you know, imagine that. The the Bucks had an impressive come-from-behind victory over the Sixers, 128-122 last night. Um, Eric Bledsoe got ejected very early on after, you know, playing dodgeball with Joel Embiid. At least get your money's worth, man. Marcus Smart, like he got that ejection, but he shoved Embiid on the ground. Like <laughs> Bledsoe, if you're going to get kicked out, at least get him in the face with the ball. That's all I'm saying. I know, like, well, I was just kind of surprised that Embiid didn't catch the ball. Like, it wasn't like he threw it that hard. Like, it just kind of bounced off his, his chest and Embiid was like, all right. Yeah, and then and then Bledsoe just kind of walked off. But I don't know. That that was a weird start to the game. I thought, you know, it, it kind of set the scene for, you know, a playoff atmosphere. But it didn't really cloud from the fact that we got some massive performances from the two biggest stars in the game. Joel Embiid had a triple-double. Giannis had a super-efficient 45-point double-double. I mean, is this matchup exactly what the Eastern Conference Finals needs? I mean, it's what the TV executives want, for sure. <laughs> There's a lot of personalities. There's a lot of narrative. I wonder if it would come down to those two former Spurs coaches. You got Brett Brown and Mike Buttonholzer, right? Mm -hmm. That's pretty interesting. They both kind of wound up with like their own versions of Tim Duncan, right? Basically. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a good comparison. Of those two coaches, who do you think is more likely to be proactive in kind of switching things up? See, I'm not sure either one. Like, I feel like they're both like, we do our stuff for the Spurs, whatever. That's why I kind of want to see the Raptors play these teams. I feel like with Nick Nurse in there, it's going to get crazy real fast. Right. Whereas these two teams might be the same matchups the entire series. Yeah, Nick Nurse has kind of, I mean, this has basically been his brand all season long. He's just throwing these, you know, wild lineups out there just to kind of see what they can do. And, you know, at, at times it's, it gets kind of frustrating because we don't really know what to expect from a lot of these lineups uh, going forward. But it's like, he knows exactly what his players are capable of doing, and he will toss out a you know a random lineup just just to see what happens. I feel like this series will be very traditional because you have like Embiid and Lopez. They're it's kind of interesting because they're both so essential to each team's formula. I think this would be a series where you wouldn't see much small ball really. You'd probably see pretty big lineups all the way through. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because the Bucks are still dealing with a lot of these kind of lingering injuries. The, the Bucks have been very blessed for most of the season with good health. But recently, you know, uh, Pau Gasol is out for a month. Miritich is out for maybe another two weeks. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see. Well, Brogdon too, right? When does he come back? Brogdon apparently might come back for the playoffs at some point, but it's it's not. 
Oh, I was thinking the back like first round. So it's a lingering issue. I think so. I, and especially with uh, like the plantar fascia, like that injury is not something to like mess around with. Like that, that thing can linger for forever. Well, the good thing is that that first round series, they should have a pretty easy go of it. And then round two, maybe they can get the Pacers and then maybe they can kind of really get things going for the East Conference Finals. Right. I, I think the biggest takeaway from the game was just Giannis kind of had his MVP moment against Embiid. Uh, 45 points, 13 rebounds, six assists, five blocks, no turnovers. And four of those five blocks were on Embiid, including, you know, what might have been his true trademark MVP moment, a huge block on an Embiid attempted dunk that had Embiid flat on his ass. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, just, you know, grabbing at his tailbone. He... Kind of looked a little ginger for most of the game, but obviously played for most of it and, and still put up his numbers. Yeah, Giannis blocking shots was incredible. Like at one little digression, when uh, Zaire Smith tried to dunk on him, he's like, bro, you're not in the Big 12 anymore. Like this is not even <laughs> close to happening. <laughs> I'm like twice your size. No, 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 sir. Yeah, and then at, with him and Embiid, like watching that game, Embiid cannot guard him. Like they've been trying to like, oh, I'm gonna have Embiid like sag 10 feet off Giannis, but the game is too easy for Giannis like that. Like, he had all of them in the world to like run away to attack the rim. And Embiid, he's just too slow to guard Giannis. I'm not sure that's going to work in a playoff series for very long, that matchup. Right. Yeah, I think and in recent games, recent weeks, recent months, teams have tried to kind of body Giannis with you know larger defenders. Uh, DeAndre Aiden comes to mind uh, in that improbable Suns win over the Bucks a few weeks ago. Uh, but that feels like more them trying to put a lid on the rim and less them trying to take advantage of Giannis's lack of strength because there is no lack of strength. Like Giannis with even a little bit of momentum basically pushed and beat around. Like it, it's all about getting that, that leverage in terms of force and stuff. So like Giannis is basically a rumbling, you know, enormous center with, you know, the ball handling of a guard. It, it's, it's really impossible to imagine how you defend this guy in the playoffs. Yeah, he's really causing matchup problems, which I guess is obvious because he causes matchup problems for everyone, but against Philly especially. So like Embiid's not guarding him. So Giannis is getting his points so easily, getting wherever he wants to go on the floor. And then Giannis is like, quote unquote, guarding Ben Simmons, but he's really like freelancing all over the floor. Like he had like three blocks in the last minute because he's not guarding Simmons. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, I'll go double on Embiid, no problem. Yeah, and, and it kind of goes back to a piece that I wrote last week or Maybe at this point, two weeks ago? I, I can't even remember anymore. The, the content grind is is a very long one. It's real. It's a yeah. real one. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of the ploy that the Bucks utilize probably better than any team in the league in the regular season is putting Giannis on the weakest shooter on the floor so that he can kind of freelance, play the free safety role, which is terrifying because he's seven feet tall. Yeah, he's like seven foot Draymond when he's yeah. doing that. It's, it's wild and... You know, we, we we talk about Ben Simmons. Like, what exactly do the Sixers do with Ben Simmons in the playoffs? It, it's not like he's really changed his game. It's not like he's going to be taking threes. It's not like, you know... I mean, he had, what, six points on five shots yesterday? I think the biggest thing, he has to be the one who guards Giannis. Like, he didn't... Has he guarded him much before? Because in this, in this game... He tried to guard him in the fourth quarter for a couple minutes. Giannis just bullied him in the post. Yeah. I'm so, like, Ben Simmons, you're 6'10", 250. Be strong. <laughs> so according to individual matchup data from Second Spectrum on NBA.com, Simmons has guarded Giannis on 60 possessions over their past three games. 
And so that's, you know, it's, it's a sizable amount. How did he do in those possessions? That's the funny thing. So when Simmons was the primary defender, Giannis is only shooting 40% from the field, but that's only individually. Uh, in terms of the team, the Bucks are doing just fine when that happens. Like uh, Giannis is creating so many assists and plus he's living at the line whenever uh, Simmons is guarding him. So it kind of falls into exactly what we think, you know? Simmons can't really guard him. Yeah, to me, that's what he has to do. Like Simmons has to become a more impactful defender in these kind of matchups because that's where he really can kind of add value to the team. And I think too, you see in this one, you have to have Simmons have the ball because if Simmons is off the ball and Giannis is guarding him, like it creates too many problems for the rest of the team. So like, I feel like with Philly, it all comes down to Embiid shooting threes. That's a shot that Simmons can get for Embiid anytime he wants. And he's got to make that shot. Until Embiid becomes a great three-point shooter, I kind of wonder if there's a ceiling on this version of the team. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because Embiid has kind of mentioned all season long, oh, I don't really want to shoot threes. That's not really my game, but I kind of have to do it. It, it kind of felt like an old-school type of center machismo type of thing. Uh, you know, but for this team specifically, that's what he needs to do because, you know, Tobias Harris secretly hasn't really been shooting the ball all that well. He, he still spaces the floor, obviously, because he's, he's always going to be a threat. But when Butler can't really be trusted to shoot from long range and, and Simmons is definitely not going to be shooting any threes in the, in the play, playoffs, Embiid has all the tools to do anything on the court. And that's kind of his burden. This is what he has to do now because the rest of the team can't really step up. I, it feels like, you know, Embiid and Giannis, like whichever one of those guys becomes a great three-point shooter, that could like decide the next, the Eastern Conference the next like five years. Giannis is taking a bunch of threes now. He shoots them confidently. They don't always go in, but he takes them. Yeah, I, I mean, Budenholzer has mentioned this multiple times in the recent games. He has a complete green light to shoot it. Over the past 12 games, he's averaging more than four three-point attempts per game, which is just, that, that's just not, yeah, that's not something that, we're accustomed to seeing. And, you know, that's that's a lot for a guy who projects as like a center in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, he airballed, I think, two shots last night, but he made two <laughs> also. Like, they were really bad airballs, but you know what? Just keep keep shooting if it's there. Right. And like with Embiid guarding him, he has all the time in the world, you know, check his, tie his shoes, look around, you know. <laughs> there's no one There's no one in his face. I think going back, you said about Tobias Harris, one thing I noticed in this game is like, the Bucks are really trying to bait Harris taking those like pull-up long twos. He's got to be very careful taking those shots because he comes off the screen. Lopez is dropping back and his instinct is like, oh, money, 18 foot jump shot. He's got to go to the rim. He can't, if he starts taking long twos too much, it's tough to beat the math against Milwaukee if it's long twos versus threes. Right. And should be noted, Butler was not playing last night. So the dynamic was a little bit different. We, we definitely see a different Sixers team. But the only way that this would happen, that this matchup would happen is is it is it the Eastern Conference Finals? Well, unless Philly drops to the four or five, there yeah, are two games. There are two games in front of Boston and Indy, but I think that's not going to happen, right? By the schedules. Yeah, I, I feel like the Celtics and Pacers, who are also playing tonight, are probably going to cannibalize themselves in that four or five, four or five spot. They're kind of they're kind of stuck there. Yeah, I mean, I think Philly, Philly, Toronto would be an awesome series. So this oh, this would yeah. be fun, but maybe this might not happen this year. Maybe it's down the road, but it'll happen eventually. It'll be really fun to watch. All right, so we got we got through the big names. Is it, is it time for some geek talk? Zaire Smith. Zaire, Zaire hey. Smith. Uh, he's back. He's uh, he's on the floor. He did he some three, productive right? things. I think he yeah, hit he, one. Yeah, he hit a three. 
Um, yeah, I think it was his, his only shot of the game. I think he went one for five, but he was a plus six. Uh, some brutal misses, though. Uh, he had a fast break opportunity oh, in the that second layup. half. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he completely bricks a layup. I have no idea how it happened. See, like, was he moving too fast? I don't know. I think but, there was a guy like two feet behind him. He was worried about being undercut, so he didn't go up and dunk it. And he kind oh, of just man. missed off the back of the rim. It clanked off the back of the rim. A few seconds later, DJ Wilson hits a three on the other end. It ends up being a pretty pivotal five-point swing. Sixers could have had an eight-point lead. Instead, it dropped down to, what, three? Uh, so that kind of allowed the Bucks to stick around, and Giannis kind of took them home by the end of the, by the, end of the fourth. Yeah, I mean, I, this is the first time I really watched Sire in the NBA. It just reminds you, like, how big NBA... Like, in college, it kind of felt like he was one of the biggest guys on the floor because he was so athletic and he was kind of dominating the game. Then he gets the NBA, he just looks so small out there. Like, right. even Chris Middleton. Middleton's a huge guy. He's like, oh, you're not big enough to guard me. You're like 6'4". Yeah. I'm like 6'8". That, that, that's, that's the big thing. Like, Zaire was basically a 6'4 power forward for Texas Tech last year. And I, I mean, I guess this is something that I had trouble with with Jarrett Culver. It's just the way that they kind of operate makes you think they're a lot bigger than they are. But yeah, at, at the same time, I feel like watching him, I was like, oh, he kind of looks a little bit bigger than I remembered him in college in terms I mean, he's of like smart. physique. He's frisky. I, I think if he can make threes, he'll really help this team. But he didn't take me in college. We'll see how that goes. I think like if he goes to his cold spell... Brett Brown will probably bench him in the playoffs. It'll come down to his shooting. I mean, it's even wild to think that he's going to be playing in the playoffs. This is his third game. Like, he, he has no seasoning, but at the same time, it's like the Sixers don't really have many options yeah. on the bench. Well, they're going to run out James Ennis out there. <laughs> I mean, I mean are, are there any other players between these two teams? Like, there are so many injuries that have kind of allowed these young guys to flourish and allowed the, at, at, or at least to show what they can do on the floor. Are there any guys, young guys, that you think might make a difference in the playoffs? I think the guy that I'm watching for Philly is Jonah Bolden. I don't think you can play. I mean, Boban tried to play in this game for a few minutes, but it's like, no, this is serious basketball. Like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> like, Bolden's got to be in there. Bolden's got to stick threes. Because I think to really get Simmons going, you have to have a stretch five. That's like the most impl- important player to maximize Ben Simmons. And it's not going to be Amir Johnson. And if Bolden's not shooting threes, they might have to even go smaller and play like Mike Scott at the five. So mm. I think Bolden could have a really important role for this team if he can make his shots. Mike Scott, by the way, put up some numbers last night. So He made his threes. I, I mean, that's if yeah. you're playing with Ben Simmons, you got to make threes. It's funny because I, I feel like compared to Giannis, Simmons is so much more limited, which makes like shooting more important around him. Yet they don't really have it. So uh, yeah, corner three favorite, DJ Wilson, might get some you know extended play at least for the first two games. Uh, assuming Miritich and Powell remain out. How do you see that kind of factoring into what the Bucks do in the playoffs? See, I think Wilson be more important in a series against like Boston or Toronto in terms of like guarding Lowry or Kyrie on switches. In a series against Philly without a really pick and roll guard, I'm sure uh, Buttonholzer will go with his vets. He's going to play Ilyasova, Miritich, Powell as his backup bigs. But I don't, I don't really, I think DJ could be very important for them, but I don't think in this series. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Sterling, also my SMU guys, Sterling Brown and Shake Milton both getting minutes last night. That was pretty cool. I mean, Sterling, yeah, Sterling Brown, what, put up basically the numbers of his career against the Hawks last week. Uh, and he's been getting a lot more opportunities with Brogdon out. 
he's a guy. He's got who, some Brogdonish stuff to his game. Oh yeah, I mean, and he's burly. He's he can shoot. He's smart. Um, can be that kind of you know secondary playmaker. Um, he's I mean he's basically a, a Brogdon clone. To be honest, I, I think he's actually a little bit bigger um, than Brogdon is. He's thick for sure. A, another guy who uh, probably should have been a Sixer. He was a Sixer for a little bit before they traded him. Yeah, we should point that out. That was terrible. Like that looks so bad now. You can't sell second round picks to your freaking Eastern Conference rivals. Man, that's that's yeah. going to look really bad for them. I think it's a big game against them. Yeah, that's uh, that's lacking a lot of for, uh, lacking a lot of foresight. Um, George Hill coming on strong late, especially with Bledsoe out. Uh, he had a classic Tyreek Evans rookie stat line at 20, 20 points, five rebounds, five assists. It was a strong look for one of my all time favorites. You know, he, he 25 5 is a great stat line. Let's not call it Tyreek Evans. Like, that's a great <laughs> stat line. Come on. I, we were talking about Tyreek Evans before the show. I had, to, I had to drop it in. Yeah. I mean, he's important for Bledsoe insurance for sure. If Bledsoe does something stupid, they have someone behind him who can <laughs> hold that whole thing down. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's not the player he was in Utah anymore. Uh, even though I, I say that he only spent one year at Utah, but he had a career season in Utah. Uh, but having a guy who can shoot threes, Incredibly guard, you know, both guard spots, play mistake-free basketball. And just, he's a calm guy who settles guys down. He played in the finals last year. That has to count for something. He had a big three last night, like at the end of the game. Yep. And I, I'm wondering if we should be worried at all about the Sixers who, you know, last year they rode a 16-game winning streak into the playoffs last year. They're they're looking a little shaky to, to close out this season this year. They're 15-12. and 12 since the beginning of February. Do you think any of this matters? I mean, they've had a lot of guys out, right? Embiid's been out for a while. Butler's been out of the lineup. I'm of the opinion, when you get to the playoffs, it's all about matchups. Like, I mean, Philly's win streak last year, they played Boston. What did it matter, right? Right. In that first round against the Heat, they looked, you know, unbeatable. And we were suddenly talking about, oh, this team can make it to the, you know, Eastern Conference Finals right away. But yeah, I, I feel like especially in the playoffs, it's all matchup-driven. We, we saw it with Portland and New Orleans, how quickly, you know, perspectives can change. So it, it's not always all that important to, to come in hot as long as you get the favorable matchup. But even then, it's, that's kind of hard to control as well. Yeah, and to be honest, like I'm watching most of the NCAA tournament in March, so I have to say that. Uh, <laughs> NBA play in March is it's okay. It doesn't really matter. It's all about matchups. Oh, I, I think we're just about ready to get the regular season over with, but there's still some really consequential games left on the slate. And that brings us to the NBA watch of the night. Uh, Portland versus Denver on ESPN at 1030 Eastern. This is they this is the first leg of a home and home with Portland. So they're playing Friday and then again on Sunday. Uh, these two weekend games could really swing the Western Conference playoff landscape. Yeah, you want to go into standings real quick? It's pretty close. Yeah. Uh, so the Nuggets are only one and a half games above the Rockets for the two seed. And that's where it gets kind of dicey because the Nuggets have to play the Blazers on Sunday again and the Red Hot Jazz in Utah on Tuesday. Uh, the Rockets' next two games are against the Knicks and Suns. So there you go. I mean, it's looking like a pretty good bet that the Rockets might rise up to the two, Nuggets drop down to the three, and then suddenly, 
I don't know. There, there's, there's already a lot of jostling for position in the bottom. Teams are probably licking their chops trying to, trying to get to, get to the six seed if that happens. Yeah, I mean, you'd much rather see Denver than Houston. The thing I'm going to watch in this game is so since they lost Nurkic, their next five games, Portland has been Chicago, Atlanta, Detroit, Minnesota, Memphis. So like against those kind of teams, you can play NS Cantor at center. We'll see again this weekend against Jokic if that's going to hold up. And to me, that's the question about Portland right now is how long do they stick with Cantor and when do they just concede defeat, get to the Zach Collins hive, and get going some fun <laughs> basketball. Zach Collins had a pretty good game last time. I, he hasn't been you know, getting in too much foul trouble, which I feel like is, is his biggest kind of uh, drawback in the playoffs. You just can't really trust him to stay on the floor. But I mean, as we've been saying all, all season, he adds such a unique element to this team. There aren't many players in the league who can, you know, reliably spot up from three and block shots at the rate he does. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not holding my breath. I, I feel like a lot of cancer is coming on before we actually see that adjustment. But uh, that's what I'm thinking for these other Western Conference teams. Like, if you see NS Cantor at five in the first round, that's a green light for two points every <laughs> single time, right? Yeah, like, that course. gives you a hope against the team for sure. Yeah, so a lot at stake with this one tonight: Portland and Denver, ESPN, 10:30 Eastern. And remember, if you want to watch every NBA game, subscribe to NBA League Pass on NBA.com or your local cable or satellite provider. Spence, you know, the past few corner threes going pretty heavy on the NCAA tournament and the prospects we're excited about. This weekend, we'll be tuned into the Final Four. And, you know, it's not really the Final Four we were all promised before the season. Uh, there are still, you know, some major prospects playing over the weekend. Auburn's playing Virginia in the early game. Michigan State's playing Texas Tech after that. Uh, DeAndre Hunter and Jarrett Culver are their two biggest prospects left standing. Where do you where do you see them going with these final couple games and what do you hope to see from them out of the weekend? Well, I think for Culver, so I did a big story on him on Friday, I guess Friday. And he really struggled on offense against Michigan and Gonzaga, against bigger, more athletic defenders. So Charles Matthews against Michigan and then against Gonzaga, they would switch screens and he could he had trouble against Hachimura and Brandon Clark. So to me, like Jared Culver initiating offense against elite defenders. And this first game against Michigan State, he's going to go up against this guy named Aaron Henry. So you might have heard of Aaron Henry. He's the guy that Tom Izzo like yelled at in the tournament and became like a national story. But he's actually a pretty good basketball player. Hey. So he's a freshman. He's a 6'6", 210-pound, 3-and-D wing. He's got a lot of NBA potential. I think that matchup will be key in that game as Culver trying to create shots against that kind of defensive player one-on-one. Right. And, and we've, we've talked about Culver so, so much in the past two weeks. So I, I think we can kind of gloss over a lot of his strengths and weaknesses. We, we've definitely had that covered. Um, Though I think we could see in this game, the other thing with Culver is I wonder if he will guard Cassius Winston late. Mm. Like I want to see him trying to lock down like this elite NCAA point guard. Cassius Winston, we touched on him last week. He's very much in that Jalen Brunson, Frank Mason, Fred Van Vliet, upperclassman point guard. Not very good athletically, but a very well-rounded game. He beat Duke by himself almost, and he could make himself a lot of money this weekend. Just I'm a classic winning point guard. I get you know that kind of thing. It'll be right. fun to watch him against Culver. Maybe I think that'll be key for Tech on defense. I think that's one thing that we've kind of haven't actually talked about with Culver 
you know, him being 6'5", broad shoulders, long arms, you know, very smart on defense. Do you see him being a lockdown defender at the at the next level or having the potential to be? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he has, he's got to get stronger. That's the big thing. Like, so just this week, I had one scout tell me, oh, he's for sure six foot seven. Like, I saw yes. him at the tournament. He was like, I'm, t-, he was like, I seen him. I'm taller than him. I saw exactly how tall he was. He's six foot seven. But then we had Roger tell us in Michigan that he was smaller than Charles Matthews, who's six foot six. Like, right. I need some measurements on, on Derek Culver <laughs> immediately. Yeah. Like, I, someone bring a tape measure to this final four game. He is by far. I mean, because I'm just assuming that Zion's not going to be participating in any of the combine proceedings. But Jared Culver, please get all of your measurements done. We, we're dying to know. This is like Kyler Murray, I guess, but the other way. Like, how yeah. tall are you really? Absolutely. And I think for sure he's very good defensively. He's got a great steal and block numbers. He's really smart. He's, he's not super quick, but he's very, got very long arms, very smart positionally. I think he could be a great, a great defender on guys the only question with him is like bigger, stronger players. Like you're like, is he going to be able to guard your uh, Jimmy Butlers? I don't know. That's the question is how big can he get frame wise? Because he's not, right now he's still pretty skinny. He could get a lot thicker, hopefully. Right. And DeAndre Hunter from Virginia, the other highly touted prospect out of this draft, uh, still in the final four. He's risen up the charts and... You know, at, at this point, we can look at his tournament and be like, it's pretty uneven. It, we haven't really seen a standout performance. Um, what are you expecting from him? It should be a fun game. So he's going to play Auburn. Auburn, I think Auburn-Virginia is going to be a battle of like tempo and matchup. Uh, so like Auburn wants to play as fast as humanly possible, jack threes. Virginia wants to kill the pace, slow it down, be very deliberate. And I think like Auburn is going to want to speed up Hunter and make him make quick decisions. Because it seems like he really predetermines what he's going to do. He's like, I have the ball, like jab, step, jab, step, dribble, dribble, shoot. Or I have to pass it across the lane. But he rarely makes decisions on the fly. And that'll be fun to watch that against Auburn. I'm really sad your guy Okiki is out. That would have been an awesome matchup. He was incredible last weekend, man. That was brutal. I mean, it's funny because Okiki has kind of had the perfect roadmap to showing NBA teams just how valuable he could be at the next level. He played, you know, Kansas. He he defended Dedrick Lawson. He defended, you know, the North Carolina UNC, guys. He killed see man. He freaking yeah. killed them. He defended Carolina expertly. And, man, to see him against Hunter would have been incredible. And it would have shown kind of the breadth of what he could do against these kind of new age uh, stretch fours, stretch fives. Uh, it's, it's, it's a real bummer. I, I wonder what he does. Yeah, that's a tough call. I, I can kind of see him trying to get, I would think there's no real point to go back to school, right? Because if you go back to school now, you're not going to be able to play till next February and you're going to be out the whole time. You're going to come from an ACL injury. You look at um, deep cut, Jare Foster SMU last year. The same thing happened. I mean, he tore his ACL. He came back middle of the season. He wasn't, this, he wasn't the same. Now he's lost all his draft stock. And to me, like, if Oki can get a commitment from a team late first, early second, go to the NBA, get NBA training staffs, NBA recovery, that'd make a lot of sense. I mean, honestly, how high could he have gone if he had been healthy? Like, the way he's been playing this tournament. His specific skill set. He can shoot threes, and he can reliably defend all around the floor. And he's, what, 6'8", 6'9", a reasonable athlete, not super explosive, but like he's really more fluid smart than player. DeAndre Hunter, yeah. right? Yeah, he's absolutely. Much, he's a f- more fluid player, probably quicker decision maker, and DeAndre's probably going top five, top ten. Like, oh, he could have made that much money 
Yeah. I'd be if I was a team in late first, I would think long and hard about promising Okiki and getting him locked up. If I actually had two picks or something. Ugh, future spur. I, I can already see it. He could have won the whole tournament. If Auburn had Okiki, they could have won the whole thing. Maybe they still will, but that would have been really fun to watch. Bruce yeah. Pearl. <laughs> yeah, you you talk about, you know, Auburn, you know, wanting to speed this game up. Auburn's in the middle of the pack in the nation in terms of pace, but compared to Virginia, who has the yeah, slowest guess, pace, right? yeah, you, they might as well be the fastest team in America. Uh, they take nearly 50% of their shots from three. It's been a winning formula so far. Uh, Virginia kind of has the players to match that, though. I think Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome, both very good three-point shooters. Uh, Hunter, who hasn't really shown it yet, but like has been very good from three over the course of the season. How do you how do you feel that kind of interplay playing out? I'm curious to see. So really, I think the matchup to watch is Ty Jerome versus the guards at Auburn. So like Ty Jerome's a bigger point guard, really good shooter, really smart, but not very fast. And this is kind of the perfect matchup to see him go against like these super fast Auburn guards, especially Jared Harper, who can shoot pull up threes from anywhere. And like, I guess this is not too exciting, but like this could be like a backup point guard battle in the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, I mean, my like very convenient comparison for Ty Jerome is just, look, look at how, look at how well um, Landry Shamit has kind of acquitted himself in the NBA immediately being a guy who doesn't really make mistakes and just can run off the ball and shoot threes confidently um, off screens and off movement. So Ty Jerome is, is a guy I'm, I'm looking at as maybe like a late, first early second kind of guy just because teams need these types of guys he's on a high floor because he can really shoot it and he's really smart and he's smart like solid positionally on defense like yeah. you can plug Jerome into a system and he'll like route guys so they gotta go he's not gonna like break the system he's not, he's a very very smart player and like these UVA guys they can know how to play within a system because they're forced to at UVA any other thoughts on on guys who could probably make some money this weekend if they do well I mean, Jared Harper, he's really fun to watch. He's like your classic, like, he's maybe 5'10", but he can really shoot threes off the dribble, and he can pass the ball. That's the kind of guy, maybe you bring him in off the bench and kind of change up the pace of the game. I would guess he's going to be undrafted because of his size, but he's a guy who could have a really big weekend if, he gets, if he's shooting well from three. Right, and Cassius Winston for Michigan State has been awesome. Uh, and... He's probably in that range as well. I, I don't know where he is necessarily. Maybe, maybe early second, mid-second. Basically the, the realm of a Fred Van Vliet, Jalen yeah. Brunson, uh, Frank Mason type. Um, so yeah, the tournament will be over by next week. Uh, so I guess we should probably wrap up our thoughts on the tournament, tournament in general. Charks, what's been your biggest takeaway on the tournament? So, like, really, the last few weeks, I've really been breaking down, you know, the rest of the lottery. I mean, we'll get to Zion later, but, man, after Zion, it is tough, man. I, so, I'm, I'm thinking about it right now, and it, it kind of feels like the big question, starting at two, is you have these two groups of players. You've got your guys who could be initiators, RJ Barrett, John Morant, Jarrett Culver. And it's like, do you really want those guys being like they might be better players than some of the complimentary guys, but do you really want them being the feature guy on your offense in the at the NBA level? And that's like one group of guys. Then you got the guys more on the range of like Brandon Clark, DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish, who might offer more defensively, 
probably can't be primary. And actually, no, certainly can't be primary initiators. But maybe they could be more valuable as three and D plus guys, as opposed to these kind of more ball dominant players who you're not sure how that'll translate to the league. And that's kind of the eternal debate, right? Like, and we have it all the time with KOC on the on the pod here. It, I feel like it really depends on just how much star power these these teams see in these guys. Uh, we treat big boards generally as a sort of consensus, but this year especially, I feel like the order and the preference is really, really going to vary team by team. And I, I mean, I'm sure it does already, but at least from a draft nerd perspective, everyone's going to have their their big boards, you know, different all across the board. I feel like there's always like the group thing kind of happen as you get close to the draft. But this year, it this seems like a draft where the bet the second best player can go at 15 or 25. Yeah. Right. After Zion, the drop off is so big. It's all going to be about system and fit. And then a lot of it too is like, how much can you improve someone's jump shot? So like the big problem, one of the big problems with this, with RJ Ja and Culver, it's none of those guys right now. Like oh, I can guarantee he's going to be a good to great three point shooter in the NBA. They've all got different kind of flaws there. And it's like, can they go to a team that can really tweak up that shot? Like I was talking somewhere to a scout the other day about uh, Culver, and he said, oh, you could be like Karis LeVert or Josh Richardson. But it's like those guys can, for A, Richardson can really shoot it. Right. And it's like, man, even Karis LeVert, like Karis LeVert is not shooting well in the NBA. Karis LeVert was a 40% three-point shooter in college, and his shot has not really translated. Culver is nowhere near that level of shooter right now. I mean, yeah, like speaking of these types of kind of flawed initiators, what what do we even make of Darius Garland, who is kind of hanging around the lottery? We haven't seen him play in months, um, but he, I guess teams can definitely kind of project him as this type of, you know, post-Trey Young type of, you know, off, you know, on-ball creator, can shoot from anywhere. I, I don't really know what to make of him, but... The mystery is always an element in the NBA draft that, you know, appeals to teams. Yeah, it's so hard to say. Like Darius Garland, so Vanderbilt point guard, he tore his meniscus in November. He only played five games this season, and he essentially only played one game against high-level competition. That was against USC. USC, yeah. So, and like, I don't think he played you. I have to look it up. I'm not sure if he played in these international tournaments, but there's just so little film to go on. And that might end up being good for him because it's hard to say, really, like, I don't know. I mean, he had one game against elite competition in college. Yeah. And is this this a a case where a guy like Kobe White, we both like him. He wasn't quite as highly regarded entering the season, but definitely once we got into the thick of things, he really impressed in the final two months of the season and into the NCAA tournament. Yeah, that's the guy like... And you're watching guys like in November, December. So I like Kobe White, but no one's talking about him. So you're not really thinking he'll be a he'll be a f- drafted this year. She's so like, oh, he'll be great in a couple of years. But he come he came on so strong, and the Tropos draft is so weak. I'll have to go back and really watch. But it feels like he could be a guy who could make a real run up the draft boards going into the going into the pre-draft season. He's got great size, and you wonder like at UNC, it felt like they played so recklessly, which is the Roy Williams style. It was like right. Talk about fast team. It was like, Kobe White, just go shoot whenever you feel like. I don't even care. And it's like you wonder maybe in a more conservative system, maybe he might be better because he's kind of plays more, there's a little more control of what he's doing as opposed to just letting him do whatever he wants all the time. But also the fact that he was able to thrive kind of 
doing whatever he wanted all of the time might fit for a team that's just trying to kind of catch up with this whole pace and space and pace and pace and pace league that we're kind of entering into. Yeah, he's he's a fascinating prospect, and I, I think he might have a Shea Gilgis-Alexander type bump uh, in him come the pre-draft process. Well, and, and you look, like a, look back at that, so it's a crazy story with SG. I think this has been talked about, but the Clippers promised him early on in the process, shut him down, mm-hmm. and he didn't work out for anybody else the entire time. And like that's the kind of thing a smart team might be able to do in this draft. If you get the right guy to believe... Though, of course, playing in L.A. helps. Hey, come play in L.A. You know, it's all good. But I, I mean, like, if you look at White, so White is bigger than Ja, bigger than Garland, and he's a better shooter than R.J. and Culver. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get, like, too far onto him because I wasn't really watching him for NBA this year, but he's very, very interesting. Right. And I guess my takeaway is is it's Zion-related because we we didn't cover Zion in, in this previous bit, but I'm kind of warming up to the idea that Zion is the best college prospect Ooh, of the 21st century. I like it. So here are Zion's per 40 numbers, per 40 minute numbers compared to Kevin Durant's uh, in his one season at Texas. So Zion averaged 30.1 points, 11.8 rebounds, 2.7 assists, 2.8 steals, and 2.4 blocks with 3.2 turnovers. Durant's 28.8 points, rebounds, 1.5 assists, 2.1 steals, 2.1 blocks, the same turnovers per 40. And so Zion basically has better numbers across the board outside of rebounds. Same amount of turnovers, but, you know, neither team had the perfect, you know, system and and players around them. But, you know, it's college. Of course, that's going to happen. You can make the argument, though, that Durant was in a perfect position to succeed because he was basically doing everything that he does in the NBA in college. Zion was never really given the full freedom to do the things that he's proven capable of doing because of the players around him. And so Durant kind of makes this natural transition. I'm thinking Zion, once he gets into the NBA, can completely transform himself and become a different playmaker, both ends of the floor. And the thing is, we talk about you know how he's been held back by a lot of his teammates. He still put up better numbers than Durant. That's interesting. I mean, there's it's two different questions, right? It's like, who is most dominant in college versus who is the better prospect? Because mm-hmm. like, KD was way more raw than Zion was in college. KD had no point guard. It was like, talk about not being put in to succeed. Playing with Rick Barnes, it was just, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it was do something. He's playing with Augustine as a freshman. And then I think you got to put, so like to me for sure, Zion's ahead of Simmons, ahead of Fultz. I think the other guys who have put in this conversation for best prospects is Davis and Towns. Right. right. Those guys are pretty incredible prospects coming out of college. And I think Towns gets underrated a bit in this discussion. Like, Carl Towns is a seven-foot guy who can play defense and shoot like eight threes a game and score efficiently and pass the ball and defend all over the floor. Like, he was up there with any of those guys coming out of college. And then, of course, Davis. Davis was incredible. He actually won. I think he was the first player to win player of the year and be the number one overall pick. And like, Roger did an article about this. I have to go look back and look at it. But it was something like in 30 mm-hmm. years. So really, it's like Zion versus Towns. It's Zion, Towns, Davis, and Durant, right? Those are kind of the four. Am I forgetting anybody else? Not necessarily. I, I think with, with Towns, just the way that he was used at Kentucky as just a strictly back-to-the-basket guy on offense kind of limited his appeal at the time of kind of draft scouting early on. 
I think his his defensive switchability was was apparent, but we didn't really know that he could, you know, be the kind of shooter he is now until he actually got the opportunity to see it, uh, to shoot in the NBA. But I, I, do, I do think definitely Anthony Davis is in the conversation there. Uh, he was definitely the comparison, the, the benchmark that a lot of people use. Kevin Pelton used uh, Anthony Davis as, you know, um, the main comparison when trying to contextualize Zion. Um, but I and think was, there's a, there's AD a legitimate... In college. He was more of like a finisher, right? He didn't really yeah. have much offense run through him. He was more, he was the defensive guy. They threw him lobs and he kind of got garbage baskets more than, but I guess that's kind of Zion too, really, right? They're both, I guess that's interesting right there because both Zion and Anthony Davis presumably will have bigger usage in the NBA than in college. Because in college, both those guys are playing off other elite prospects and we're not really given the chance to create too much offense for themselves. I don't know if there are any highlights of those other players who, Zion was making incredible passes. Just just ridiculous passes in space, on the move. I mean, he's got some real point card abilities that I just, I every time I watch him play, I'm just baffled. And it hasn't really happened in a while for me. I think, I think Durant was actually the last time I was just like, oh, wow, this guy is going to be so good in the NBA. Yeah, man, Zion, at the very least, he was definitely the most memorable. Like, I'll never forget watching him for the first time because he didn't play in the all-star circuits because he was injured or something. And watching that game against Kentucky the first night of the season, I'm watching one of my friends. We're sitting in a bar. After like five minutes, it was like, oh my God, this is a whole different thing. Like what we're watching right now compared to anything we've seen, like like the Kentucky guys, oh, we have PJ Washington, he's a lottery pick. It's like, no, <laughs> this is not even the same sport, but you're playing what Zion's doing over here. This is truly it was like you watched it for like five minutes, like, all right, it's over. Number one pick done. This is this is complete this is finished. And it's right. it's been a great like I think I've wrote more articles about Duke this year than like anything I've watched any any other team I've read done in the ringer like in three years, just because it was so much fun to watch Zion. Yeah, like we were we were all just like frothing to to write about Zion. We were all just kind of taking turns. Like I remember you and KOC both asking me, like pitching me articles. I'm like, uh, KOC has it next, uh, Charks has it next. And then eventually I was like, dude, I gotta clear out. I gotta I gotta get my my takes in. Yeah, man. It's it's been it's been a fun ride. I guess this leads us where do you want to see him go in the NBA, Danny? If you could pick a team. I, I think I mean the Hawks is is the number one answer. For me. Oh my gosh, Trey and Zion. That'd be incredible. Yeah, but also Memphis. Memphis would be amazing too. Well, I mean, I, Zion and J. I mean, really anywhere. Like, obviously, I want Zion and Dallas. Can you imagine Zion, Luca, and KP on the same team? I'm already praying about this. I, I can't. I, <laughs> I, I honestly can't. It's like, I, I feel like that's uh, a Knicks fan's worst nightmare, a Suns fan's worst nightmare, a Suns fan's worst nightmare. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's my wife's worst nightmare. I'll be going to a lot more Mavs games if they got Zion and Luke <laughs> on the same team. All right. I, I think that's all the time we have for this week, right? Yeah, there's always more time for Zion talk. We can, we can close it there for now. All right. Uh, big shout out to Bobby Wagner for producing and engineering this week. Shout out to KOC. Shout out to all of you. We'll be back next week. Until then. Yeah, playoffs, baby. <laughs> <laughs>